Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Images of Christ. This series looks at the images of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and how they represent four aspects of Jesus Christ, the true human, king, servant, and God. Today we're going to be um, wrapping up at least on Sunday morning. I'll conclude it a little bit tomorrow night at Christmas Eve. But we're going to be wrapping up this series where we've been looking at these four symbols that came out of the, the vision that Ezekiel had when he looked into heaven of four creatures that were around the throne. John had the same four creatures in his vision in Revelation chapter 4. And so we've been going through them. We've already looked at the man, the lion, and the ox as representing the true humanity, uh, being the king, being the true king, being the true servant of God. And today we're going to look at the eagle, that Jesus is the true God. So our text is going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5, and then we'll skip down to verse 14. Uh, It's all a unit there that John's doing actually in the first 18 verses, which is the prologue to his gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. You can follow along in your booklet. It'll be up here on the screen. Or follow along in your Bible. I'm going to be using the New International Version. Hear now the word of the one true God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, one of the things that happened in the history of the church is there were a lot of arguments and controversies over the nature of who Jesus was. Was he really human? Was he really God? What did he come to do? All of those were discussions and controversies. And interestingly enough, in the early church, there was one whole group of people uh, that were known as the Gnostics that said Jesus was fully God, but he wasn't really human. Remember I mentioned that it's the exact opposite of what the Da Vinci Code, that popular novel a few years ago, he had everything backwards on that. The Gnostics that he said said Jesus was truly human actually said he was only God and he only appeared to be human. But there was a whole other group uh, following a man named Arius that said, well, no, he's not really and truly God. And actually today, that's the much more common uh, position that people have as well. Jesus is certainly a great teacher. I like the morals that he taught. I think he was a great moral example. But God? I'm just not too sure if he was really God. And would that really make a big difference? Is he really God? Does it really matter? That's what we're going to do today as we conclude with this fourth symbol of the eagle. So let's look at the symbol of the eagle, which refers to the true God. If you notice here in our text, in John's Gospel, John begins by saying that Jesus is the Word. The the Greek word there is the logos, 
from which we get things that mean knowledge, but it really referred to the logos was the, the structuring principle of all reality. And John says that that's who Jesus is, and he in fact is God. Notice in the beginning was the word, that, that word there in Greek is logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So notice the word, Jesus was with God, and he is God. And notice where he says he existed in the beginning, even before creation. Whatever that's been created, John tells us, everything was created by Jesus. In the beginning, there was only God, and that includes Jesus, uh, but everything else came into existence through Jesus. And John goes on, in fact, in verse 4 and says, look, he's light and he's life. All of this is allusions back to Genesis chapter 1. You remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the very first thing he created was light, and then he created all the forms of life. And John is telling us, hey, when you hear in the beginning, you need to understand Jesus was there. He's not created, he's the creator. He's not something that came out like light is made. No, he is light itself. He's not a created form of life. He is life itself, and all other life comes and springs from him. John is here making a clear claim that Jesus is truly and fully God. So much of a claim that many modern liberal scholars who don't want to believe Jesus is God, who want to follow that other group, they just say, well, John's gospel can't be right. That can't be what Jesus actually taught. That can't be what the early church believed. Uh, in fact, many of them said this thing was written like 150 to 200 A.D., which is funny because actually the earliest fragment we have of the New Testament is John's gospel. Uh, and it's very, very early. It's much earlier than they had prior claimed that it had even been written, which is kind of a funny thing. It's God's sense of humor, I think. Because John here is clearly claiming that Jesus is truly and fully God. Because John wants us to understand one cannot begin to understand Jesus his person, and his work until you've grasped that Jesus is God himself. The deity of Christ is the fundamental fact about Jesus. Now, when I say it's the fundamental fact, it's not that, well, he's really, really God. He was only kind of man or only kind of the king or only kind of a servant. No, he was really, truly, fully all of those things. But when I say it's fundamental, what I mean is John's giving us a glimpse. Long before Jesus became incarnate and became man, he's always been God. The fundamental thing about Jesus is that he is God. He became human. As a human, he became the lion of the tribe of Judah. He became the king and fulfilled our role. As a human, he became the servant of God and worked salvation for you and I and sacrificed himself for us. Those are all things he added to who he was. But the fundamental thing about Jesus is he always was with God and always was and is God. It is the fundamental thing one has to understand about Jesus. If you don't understand he is God, it's not that you're missing a little bit. You don't understand anything about Jesus. It's impossible to have any kind of an accurate picture of who he is apart from saying that he is God. Now, when John works through this and he talks about a bunch of historical things, he comes down in verse 14 and he makes this astounding claim that Jesus, this one who is God, also became truly and fully 
human. This is verse 14, where he says, The Word, that one who was with God and was God, that Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. And that word, made his dwelling, is kind of interesting. It's not important that you know the Greek word, but the Greek word is the one that's used for the tabernacle. He he pitched his tabernacle, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, the very presence of God. John says that's who Jesus is. When he became man, he became truly and fully human. He became flesh. That stuff that some people said, well, God doesn't really like it. John says, no, he does like it. In fact, he became that, but he did it in such a way that he's still truly and fully 100% God at the same time. He doesn't stop being God and become human. No, he is fully God, and at the same time, he becomes fully man. So notice he says there at the end of it, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is this beautiful picture of the Trinity here in these verses, and he's telling us that when, when the second member of the Trinity, the Word, comes down and becomes human, he's fully human, but he does not cease to be God. And if you want to see the glory, the glory of God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. He has come. He has revealed the truth and the glory of God to we fallen sinners. That's what John is telling us. Now, when we look at these four symbols, in the early church, there were discussions and distinctions over, well, which gospel because they, they related these four symbols to the Gospels. And there were discussions over which one's best to say the man, and which one's best to say the lion, and which one's best to say the ox. The one that there was never a discussion over was which one's best to say the eagle. Because everybody recognized the eagle represented deity, and there was no question. Everybody said, well, John's Gospel is the Gospel where most clearly and most consistently from the very first verse, the deity of Christ is proclaimed. And so the eagle represents that deity, and it speaks to us of the deity of Jesus. Now, that's all really pretty clear, but here's a question for us. As we've been going through, we've been asking, why did Jesus have to be a man? Why is that important? Why did he have to be the king? Why did he have to be the servant? Why, why does it matter? Well, we're going to ask the same question today. Why did Jesus have to be God? John's asserting that he is. Why is it important for us? As I've been doing each week, I'm going to throw up a question from the catechism that we have here in our church, not because it's Scripture, but because this is us summarizing what Scripture says. And one of the questions we have there is, why must the Redeemer be truly, fully God? Why does this matter? And here's how we answer that. The Redeemer must be truly, fully God so that, and there's three things here. Number one is obedience and suffering would be of infinite value. Number two, he would be able to bear the full wrath of God against sin. And number three, and overcome Satan and death. The Redeemer has to be God because the Redeemer has to accomplish three things. He has to be obedient and suffer in an infinite way to fulfill our role as human beings. Number two, he has to be able to bear God's full wrath against sin. I'll describe why in a moment. And number three, he has, while he's doing those things, he has to be able to overcome Satan and death. That right there should tell you there's no way a human being can accomplish that. But let's take a look at all three of these things. First, that his obedience and suffering would be of infinite value. The Scripture speaks of this need and speaks of why we can't do it. For example, in Psalm 49, 
In Psalm 49, the psalmist says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. Notice what the psalmist says. We are all trapped and prisoner to death. And no man can pay and ransom us out. No man can redeem it. Because the cost is too high for a human being to be able to pay. No human could possibly do it. Uh, and the reason for this is we need to recognize the debt that is owed is an infinite debt. If you and I, if I, if I drew a picture with all of my artistic skill, and you took that picture and destroyed it, no one would want you to pay a penalty for that. But if you broke into the Louvre and took the Mona Lisa down and did the same thing, what do you think the penalty they would try to exact from you was? I mean, see, the difference is not in what you did. The difference is in the object to whom you did the thing. You mess with my doodling, no big deal. You mess with the Mona Lisa, you've destroyed something of priceless value. Same thing if I were to go out, you know, and a bug did something and I step on it, nobody thinks anything about it. If I crush a human being, well now I've done a crime of infinite heinousness. And so the psalmist says, look, this is the problem. The price is so steep that we owe to God the obedience that is required and the suffering that is required for what we have done is so steep, no man could ever pay it. It's beyond what we could pay. And so only God can rescue us from the disaster that we have brought upon ourselves. The, the fix that you and I are in because of our sin, because of our complicity in the cosmic treason of our race is such that no human being could fix the problem. Only God can fix our problem. And the record in Scripture is, thanks be to God, He's done exactly that in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas every year, is that God has come to rescue you and I from the problem that no human being could rescue us from. Now that's the first thing, but the second thing is that the Redeemer has to bear the full wrath of God against sin. Because you and I have sinned against the infinite God, our sin and rebellion deserves ultimate punishment. Again, if you sin and transgress against me, that comes to a certain value that we might be able to work a payment out for. But the problem is, you and I have not just sinned against one another, we have sinned against God. And because God is of ultimate worth, then the problem we're in and the wrath, the justice that is due to our sin is more than you and I can pay. To go back to the analogy I used a couple of moments ago, you destroy my doodling, the law is gonna say you owe nothing. You destroy the Mona Lisa or you set fire to the Louvre and destroy all of those precious things. Or you go like a few years ago, I was in Cairo and I went to the museum there and we were looking at all the stuff from King Tut. Matter of fact, they had just had a problem shortly before we were there. A couple of guys went in and you remember the funeral mask with King Tut and it's got the little, uh, the, the little mustache, beard thing that comes down? 
some guys went in there one evening and messed with the thing and broke it off. This is a no-joke true story. And then they said, I can fix it. And they went and got some super glue. You can't make this stuff up. And they super glued the thing back on. And the next day, one of the curators goes by and notices the glue oozing out around the beard thing and does not say, eh, no big deal. They freak out. They have to bring in a restoration team who spends eight months, but it can never be fixed. How many of you know those guys were in trouble when it was found out? Well, friends, King Tut's burial mask is nothing. We've offended we have committed treason against the holy God and the justice that is due. See, it would be if the curator of that museum had said, ah, no big deal, who cares? What would everybody have done? I mean, the first thing they'd have done is probably gone in and taken all the stuff out of that museum and said, you can't keep this stuff anymore if that's the way you're going to be. If a judge simply forgave my heinous crime, they're not being just. It is injustice to not exact payment. And so God says there has to be payment that is due the crime, but the problem is the crime is of infinite injustice. And so there has to be infinite justice. But this requires ultimate payment that's beyond the ability of any human being to bear. See, the night you remember that Jesus, we're kind of flash-forwarding from his birth, but even at his birth, you remember some of the people came and told Mary, look, a sword's going to pierce your own soul because the destiny of this child is such. What's going to come and happen to him, Mary, is going to bring pain into your soul. And as Jesus comes, and you remember he's in the garden, and we're told he's actually sweating great drops of blood, and he's weeping, and he's crying, and he's crying out. Why is that? John Calvin pointed out many years ago, if all Jesus was doing was suffering a martyr's death like other human beings have done, why is he weeping like that? Other Christian martyrs have gone to their ultimate death and being burned at the stake, singing hymns, praising God. Why is Jesus weeping and crying? Because it's not about physical pain. It's not about physical death. It's about he's going to bear the full weight of the wrath of God. All of it. All the justice that is due for all human sin. From Adam and Eve plucking the fruit in the garden to the sin you committed this morning when you woke up and I committed this morning and all the way to the end of time. All of that sin is laid on Jesus Christ and he takes it all to himself and he bears the full weight of the white-hot wrath of God. Who else could do that? Any volunteers? Friend, no human being could do that. And not only that, while Jesus is suffering, while he is bearing the wrath of God, he has Satan on his right and death on his left to contend with. Because the third part of this, he's got to overcome Satan and death. The book of Hebrews tells us this as to why Jesus came. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We looked at that verse under Christ the man. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. So not only is Jesus in his life obeying in our place, suffering in our place, 
taking the full wrath of God in our place, at that very time, he's also having to contend with Satan in our place at the same moment. And the writer to Hebrews says he does it, and he does it in such a way to free us from Satan and to free us who've been afraid of death our entire lives. The book of Acts brings it up this way in one of the early sermons Peter is preaching. And he says, so God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. See, if you get the drama and the picture, while Jesus has obeyed and he is suffering in our place and the full wrath of God is coming down on him and Satan is attacking on one hand and death attacks on the other because it seems to be the moment of vulnerability, Peter tells us, but what they discovered was it was impossible. There was no way for them to win from the beginning because the one who was doing this was not just human, he was God himself. And so it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He did all of that. He crushed Satan. He defeated death. And in all of that, you and I are offered salvation for free. That, that is what the gospel is about. And that's why we sing every year at Christmas. Because he is fully God, Jesus is able to conquer death itself, to offer life to those who are united to him by faith. All of this is given to us in Jesus Christ. And so the result of all of this is obedience is fulfilled, the penalty is paid, God's wrath is fully satisfied, Satan and death are conquered. All done by one person. No one else could do that. So this is why it's critical that it's not just sweet little baby Jesus. I tell you, you know, one of the greatest theology scenes ever in a movie is in that that great movie, Talladega Nights, uh, with, with, you remember, where there's the, the guy, Ricky Bobby, you know, and he's got his friend, and they're arguing when they pray, who do they pray to? And the one guy said, I like praying to, he starts praying to sweet little baby Jesus, because that's the Jesus I like, sweet little baby Jesus. And so said virtually every American today, because we like sweet little baby Jesus. I like little Jesus that I can hold, but sweet little baby Jesus can't save you from your sin. Sweet little baby Jesus cannot bear the full weight of the wrath of God. Sweet little baby Jesus can't conquer Satan and death in your place and set you free. But God, incarnate, can do all of that. And that's what we are being told is what he, what he has done for us. His obedience and suffering in your place are of infinite value. And so as I've been saying throughout the series, this is good news for you and for me. Your sin will never be deeper or greater than the grace of God that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. God is never looking to exact another penalty for you out of your sin and say, well, Jesus covered a lot, but you know, that's really a bit too much right there, so I'm going to have to get another pound of flesh out of you. Oh no, never. Every drop of the justice of God that will ever be due for ever, any sin that you have ever done in thought, word, disease, uh, uh, deed, uh, desire, action, you name it, it's all already been paid for by Jesus Christ. Every drop is done. And this is why, friends, when we die, we're not looking for more penalty to be paid after death. It's already been paid. It's been paid in full by Jesus Christ, and he offers true life and blessing to you and me. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean to us today? 
first thing, just I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, do you see why Jesus had to be truly, fully God? I began this series as we've looked at each of these symbols. You remember when I talked about if you've been a parent, and we've all been there, right, with kids that are having ridiculous arguments that really, truly are epically nonsensical, right? We've all been there. And sometimes people look at this and say, well, all that doctrine, it doesn't matter. Oh, it matters, friend. It very much matters. Because if he's not the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle, you're not saved. Nor am I. And there is no hope if he's not all of those things. It's not a philosophical nicety when we talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. If he is not God, sin is not conquered. The wrath of God is not satisfied. Satan is not vanquished, and death is not defeated. All of which is pretty important, i got to tell you. i got to tell you, it is of critical importance. So again, sweet little baby Jesus that we like to think about because that keeps me in control which is the ultimate thing that I really want, right? What we're all really after is a God we can control. The problem is the God you can control can't possibly accomplish everything that had to be accomplished. I need a a human being who is the true second Adam. I need a raging lion. I need a strong, true servant in my place, and I need one who is fully God who can come and save me. And so the true story of Christmas, the true story is not all the other stuff we've wanted to add to it. And it's not even about, well, it's a time that we give gifts or any of that. No, it is about the fact that God has come, invaded, uh, invaded our world, come into the disaster that we have made, and has conquered in our place and offers salvation to us. Do we see that? Do we understand that? Now that leads to a second question, which is do we trust in Jesus, the God-man who has come to save us? See, faith, is not mental assent. Knowing a fact and trusting that fact are two different things. They're not the same thing. God calls us to active trusting in Jesus and in his work to save us. So the question that comes to us is, do we acknowledge our need to be saved? Do I recognize that it really is that bad that Jesus had to do those things? Do I recognize that my sin is not destroying Brett's doodling? It's destroying every precious artifact human beings have ever made, and then some. Do I recognize that my sin is against a great God? There was a, a, a church father in the, around 1100, his name was Anselm. He was Archbishop of Canterbury, and, and Anselm of Canterbury uh, wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, which means why the God-man. And Anselm's answer, and it was because we had offended this great and holy God, and only the God-man could come and do it. And, and throughout it, Anselm keeps asking questions, and people keep trying to get around it, and Anselm keeps saying, then you haven't considered how great your sin is. And if you haven't considered how great your sin is, you don't know how much you needed to be saved. And therein lies the problem for us. Do we acknowledge our need to be saved? And do we acknowledge that it is so great that only the God-man could do it for us? Do we recognize that? 
are we actively trusting him to save us from our sin? Because here's the good news. That's all we have to do. There is no other Herculean effort that's required. As a, you know, a prior Marine, I've always loved the Marine Corps commercials because they are the best military commercials we have. That's just objective fact. That's not a, a subjective biased opinion. You remember the ones a few years ago where it was the guy climbs up the cliff, you know, and he's got to take a sword and he fights a dragon and he kills it. And at the end of all of it, the Marine Corps says, basically, maybe you could be one of us if you could do all of this. It's all about this Herculean effort. And I actually like that because it kind of does appeal to, you know, that appeals to young guys, right? I, I want to go up and fight the dragon. I want to do all that. But see, here's the good news. You don't have to do that for salvation. Because the reality is if you climb to the top of the hill we're at, and at the top is your sin and the wrath of God Almighty and Satan and death, you got no chance of winning that battle. The good news is Jesus has already climbed the cliff and done all of that for you and offers it to you free, scot-free. Do I believe that? Have I embraced that? Friend, if you do, it'll change everything about you. Life will be, to use John's word a couple chapters further, you'll be born again. You'll be new. Everything will be changed. Now what we're going to do in recognizing this is we're going to be coming down to the Lord's table as we've been doing each week during this series. Because this table represents the story of salvation. The bread that we take every time we do this is the incarnation. It represents the body of Jesus Christ. That the one who came truly took our flesh. He was as real as we are. And in fact, the good news is, even after the resurrection, you remember all the disciples thought he was a ghost after the resurrection. And what does he say? Oh, no, touch me. Baby, you got any fish for me to eat? I'm not a ghost. He is still the God-man, seated on the throne. Still the God-man. So when we take this bread, we're being reminded that God has become one of us to work salvation for us. And the cup reminds us that he did that to bear our sin, to shed his blood to pay for us, because it wasn't enough just to become human. He had to obey in our place, and he had to suffer in our place, and he had to bear the wrath of God in our place. And the cup reminds us he's done all of that, and therefore we are free. So I want to encourage us all today to come to God's table of salvation and to receive what the Lord has for us. We're going to uh, take it in just a moment. I want to remind you, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate with us today. You do need to be a believer, which means that you understand what I've been saying, that Jesus is truly and fully God, that he lived in our place, was perfectly obedient, perfectly sinless, then died and bore the wrath of God for me, and all that is required of me is faith and faith alone. If you believe that, this is your table. And we encourage you to come, to receive, to celebrate the salvation that God gives to us. 
If you are someone here who uh, cannot eat gluten, if you raise your hands, we will have a gluten-free option that will be brought to you. Other than that, I encourage you to hear and receive what God has done. And as you're taking the elements in a moment, I want you to, if you're a believer here, again, if you've got sin, confess it, but give thanks to God. We are celebrating this whole month. Salvation has come, and we are saved. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, as we consider what you have done for us, as we consider the story of the gospel, Lord, we stand amazed. We stand amazed. Lord, no myth, no tale, no news we have ever heard is as astounding. And this is true. You did it. So Lord, I pray this morning you would open our eyes and we would see that Jesus, the God-man, has come and in him we are given salvation full and free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just three or four minutes. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal Son of God. You are with the Father and the Spirit in the beginning, for you are one with God and our God. And all things, including us, were made through you, for in you is life, and that life is the light of men. In the fullness of time, you became flesh, and you tabernacled among us. Yet in taking our flesh, you did not become less, for you remain truly and fully God, and in you we have beheld the very glory of the one and only God. You took flesh to work salvation for us. And like this bread, your body was broken. But while bread is of this earth and is only able to feed our bodies for this life, you are the bread that has come down from heaven and you feed our soul that we might have eternal life. So Lord, we take this sacrament in faith, believing that you are the bread of heaven and that whoever feeds upon you will live forever. Take and eat. God, you are the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And when we strayed, you did not abandon us, but in your love sent your Son to redeem and restore us to yourself. Lord Jesus, you were conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. And though you were sinless, you suffered under Pontius Pilate, were crucified, dead, 
and buried. Your blood was spilled to seal the new covenant, to pay for our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You promised that whoever believed in you would never be thirsty again, and whoever drank of you would have eternal life. In taking this cup, we proclaim that we believe and we look to you alone for true eternal life. Take and drink. Lord, we have heard your word. We have seen all that Jesus has done for us in obeying in our place, suffering in our behalf, quenching the full fury of God's righteous wrath, vanquishing Satan and defeating death. So, Lord, we ask that you would seal the benefits of your word and table to our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit upon us to bring forth new life and fruitfulness and to renew us in the image of our Lord Jesus. And send us forth in your power that we might proclaim the gospel of God to all who will hear. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our God. And God's people say, Amen. Let's stand together and let me speak God's word of benediction over you. And I encourage you to receive what Jesus, the true God, offers to you. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. I hope to see you tomorrow evening as we conclude with our celebration of Christmas Eve. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.